Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. Our topic today, magic in Christianity. Guest is Robert Connor, author of Jesus the Sorcerer. His articles, The Romans Meet Jesus and Faking Jesus, are featured on thisinfo.com and scribe respectively. We discuss the topic magic and the supernatural in the early church. We also discuss sorcery and demonology in the Greco-Roman culture of that time. So I was very uh, fascinated with your article called was Jesus accused of necromancy and I've just full disclosure I have a, a master's in Jewish studies and in our previous conversations we talked about how um, magic in different societies was um, like they considered what the other groups were doing as magic and what they cons- they were doing as religion and and I heard an interview where, where you were discussing that as well. But um, the previous um, uh, host of the show and I used to debate about how the Israelites' um, perspective on prophecy and even demonology was different than o- other cultures. And that can be debated, but um, the question that I have for you is, what are the, like, I know that in our previous conversations you talk about the similarities between the magical papyri and the different stories of the Greco-Roman world regarding resurrection and ghost stories, but is there anything particularly different that you see in the the miracles of Jesus or the, the connection that he had from the Jewish world of that time from the other stories? Because we know about the similarities from our conversation but do you see differences? Do you see unique um, ideas or ways of dealing with uh, either the demonic realm or the spirit world that are not seen in the other cultures? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, I think that uh, I, I see Jesus basically as a Jewish apocalyptic prophet from Galilee who establishes a regional reputation uh, first uh, basically described by Mark which I think all mainstream scholars would agree is the earliest of the Gospels was probably written about sometime after AD 70 after the fall of Jerusalem so that puts Mark at least a full generation after the death of Jesus so, to begin with, we need to establish that the the material that Mark uses for his uh, for his gospel is not known actually, and it is actually not knowable. So, any reconstruction of where Mark got his material is necessarily conjectural. That said. Mark tells us that Jewish exorcists were already using Jesus' name for exorcism while he was alive. And the account in Acts about the sons of Sceva, which you're probably familiar with, uh, talks about Jewish exorcists, you know, seven sons of Sceva, because seven is a magical number, are trying to to uh, expel a demon and using the name of Jesus and then instead of expelling the demon the demon expels the exorcist by chasing them out of the house so obviously that was uh, a construed story to illustrate the, the the superiority of the name of Jesus for exorcism over the names that Jewish exorcists were using. But if you look through the the magical papyri, as well as stories the, in the legends of Solomon and, and all the rest of it from that general era, I think it establishes without any doubt that the early Christians, as well as Jesus, were, were basically... 
referring to a, a broadly shared cultural understanding of the spirit world. The understanding that there are spirits basically pulling the strings, you know, the levers, working everything behind the scenes, which is how people in the ancient world generally understood things to work. Lacking physics, we have spirits. But yeah, the short answer is uh, that no, I don't see any basic difference at all. And when you get up to the second century and you're encountering uh, writers like Origen, actually he would probably be early third, he's basically writing in a work like Contra Celsum about the power of names. And when Jesus cast the, uh, cast the demons out of the man in the, in the graveyard and, and says, what is your name? Our name is Legion. It was understood throughout the ancient world that in order to control a spirit entity magically, you had to use the name. Even the conjuring of ghosts and the magical papyri frequently supplies a name for the ghost to call the ghost up. So, yeah, I, I don't see any real difference functionally uh, at all between uh, between the the miracles and exorcisms of the New Testament and all the miracles and exorcism that was going on in the in the broader culture. Well, you define Jesus as a Jewish apocalyptic prophet. So, um, to define our terms, uh, the Israelites are known to have come out of Babylonian and Egyptian influence and then created a religion in contrast to those communities. I know that there's some things that are similar, like uh, in my research, I even found that the, the demoniac that, um, the garrison demoniac that the spirit went into the pigs, there's, there's a parallel in Babylonian uh, religion where you use a kid or a, piglet and you transfer the evil spirit into it and you cut up cut up the pig and you rub it on the body and stuff like that so that's a, a connection but uh so a lot of the their writings were in contrast to the other um religions or deities also with the canaanites then apocalyptic you have groups like the essenes or others who are have this eschatological battle between the forces of light and the force of darkness, and they're waiting. They're waiting for this final conflict that is going to show who's who are the true followers of God. But the 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 most intriguing one is the term prophet, because I know the term prophet in in academic circles has become more of a religious leader or someone with a big following. But the prophetic um, idea within ancient Judaism wasn't. Like most people think about foreseeing the future, but it was about uh, convicting the the public uh, about going back to the ways of of God. And then there was this this thing that it wasn't ecstatic. It wasn't uh, like people try to compare the prophets of of ancient Israel with with um, shamans and and other individuals. And and there's not that sense of being. Um, Maybe there's a sense of being carried by God into the celestial realm or having visions, but there's not this idea of bringing about yourself. Like there's this idea that God comes to them instead of them seeking God through um, roots or, or plants or mushrooms. So so that was the debate that I had with, with my fellow host, this idea of um, it's always based on this um, kind of being sapped by God when they least expect it and having these revelations so so are you saying that although there is connection between the shamanistic and, and the other uh, religions of the way they use the elements to bring about an outcome, are you saying that within the context of Jesus, was he tapping into some type of prophetic thing? Or is that how his followers saw, the, saw him as having a, a prophetic utterance or a, a way of bringing people to their deity? Well, that raises a host of questions. First of all, um, 
we don't ever we don't actually have in the New Testament anywhere a or or in very very few places in the New Testament do we have anything that any mainstream scholar thinks comes verbatim from the lips of Jesus. As I, as I mentioned before, you have to start with the understanding, at least in mainstream scholarship, of course every evangelical will, or nearly all of them will, uh, you know, have a hissy fit about this question. But it would appear from the internal evidence of the Gospels that none of the Gospels were written by an eyewitness. And it's quite questionable whether any of the Gospels contain any eyewitness testimony. That can be debated endlessly, but no one has a way to prove it one way or the other. Second point is that the very earliest of the Gospels doesn't even get written until a full generation after Jesus' death, and, by the way, after the first Jewish-Roman war breaks out, in uh, Galilee, and the Roman troops work their way south to Jerusalem, surround Jerusalem, completely destroy it, uh, destroy any number of villages on the way. So you can assume that if the generation that actually heard Jesus speak was still alive, they were either killed many of them, in the Jewish war. Or they left, and, and they got out, and they fled to surrounding regions, which is, I mean, what we would see in any war, even today in the Middle East, right? We would see devastation, and we would see masses of refugees fleeing for their lives. So there's no reason to expect that during the Jewish-Roman war that ended in about, what was it, 73 CE with the fall of Masada, that anything was different. So in the midst of this turmoil, it is very unlikely that we have any real eyewitness people left for the career of Jesus. If a person goes back and reads Josephus' Wars of the Jews, in which he sets out this entire history, and which is actually our primary source for this whole episode or, or this whole era uh, in the Middle East around the, around the Second Temple Judaism, uh, you will find that there were numerous people in Palestine named Joshua, which is basically, Jesus is just Latin for Joshua. It was a popular name. Uh, there were a number of these people who were prophets. Uh, and I, I tend to agree with you that instead of like foretelling the future, prophecy at this time had to do with calling people's attention to a current situation. And I believe that there is a stratum of primitive material yeah, in the New Testament, particularly in Mark, that suggests that Jesus was a locally famous exorcist slash prophet who was foretelling that the kingdom of God was going to be established, perhaps by miraculous means. There have been a number of, of scholars who have suggested that Jesus actually went to Jerusalem to provoke a confrontation with the temple authorities on the theory that that confrontation would usher in the end, that it would be like a cosmic trigger, as it were, that, that would bring about the return of the Son of Man and, and the end of Roman rule, that the Romans would be driven out of Palestine, and that Jewish rule and sovereignty would be reestablished. And I think that's actually, I mean, I, I think that is almost self-evident if you look at the charismatic figures that populated Palestine while the Romans were basically grinding the Jewish people to dust and disrespecting their, their religious cultus. Um, so, 
in that setting, in the setting that is sketched out by Josephus in the Wars of the Jews, I think it is a figure like Jesus is not only understandable, figures like Jesus are inevitable. That is what that is how an oppressed people at the time would logically respond to the intervention of foreign uh, governments or powers, just like the Maccabees before had responded. So I don't think any of that is actually particularly debatable or even all that interesting, given the background. Now, the question is, what does prophecy entail? Does it entail possession? Does it entail losing your mind? Well, according to Philo of Alexandria, his writings on prophecy, and I cannot give you the book, chapter, and verse of where he writes this right offhand, but his he has a famous passage to the effect, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, that when the Spirit of God enters, the mind has to leave. It's like he compares it to the sun coming up and the sun going down. So when the Spirit of God enters the person's mind. It's like the sun comes up and it drowns out everything. It blots out everything. And then when it goes down, then the person's rational mind comes back into play. Uh, if you remember the occasion of Saul going to look for David back in, what is it, First Samuel, where he goes to, uh, to look for David and he meets up with the prophets and he becomes possessed and strips off his clothes and begins to rave. And I don't recall the Hebrew term, the verb, but the verb for prophesying and raving is actually the same term. If you look it up uh, in a lexicon, it, it depends on the context, whether you translate it prophecy or prophesying or whether you translate it raving. So apparently Saul when essentially bonkers, uh, strips off his clothes. This kind of thing, uh, though, is is kind of is is an opaque window, more or less, into practice. Because when you look at the texts of the Old Testament, I think the consensus is that the textual evidence is preserving the temple cult and its laws, rites, and rituals. But then if you look a little bit deeper into the text, you will find references in Isaiah, Deuteronomy, of, of laws against, for example, necromancy. You find references in Isaiah of people uh, sitting in tombs, spending the night in, in graveyards, presumably to get in contact with the dead through a very common technique anciently called incubation, where the person sleeps and receives uh, information from gods or ghosts or whatever in a dream. This is typically how people got healing in the temples of Asclepius. They would go and they would sleep on a fleece, sacrifice a sheep, sleep on the fleece and then the god would come to them in a dream and, and reveal what they needed to, to do to become uh, sound of body again. So when you look at the textual evidence, there you know there's always some question there about who's writing it for what purpose and whose viewpoint they're really representing. And, and I think it would be a mistake to become dogmatic one way or another about what counts as prophecy, what counts as possession. But no, I don't think I don't think Jesus was, you know, putting his fingers to his forehead and pretending to see the future. I think that he was he saw himself probably very much in the role of an Old Testament prophet who is telling people at the time who are in distress, what they need to know in order to escape that, that situation. Like the prophets addressing the invasion of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, or what have you. So yeah, I mean, on that point, I would, be, I would certainly tend to agree with your, with your assessment of what prophecy 
meant. The other thing about prophets, whether you look at Elijah or Elisha or any of the prophets of the Old Testament, is that they prove their bona fides by working wonders. They produce food miraculously. Uh, Elijah throws his cloak down in the Jordan River parts so that he and Elisha can walk across the river on dry ground. They, they foretell the future, not far into the future, but they see, they hear things and they see things that are happening essentially contemporaneously with them. It's only up until, up until about the book of Daniel, I would say, based on my non-specialist knowledge of that, that, that you start getting prophets who are seeing visions of beasts and the Son of Man and all that sort of thing that comes from the book of Daniel. But even the ancient Romans like Porphyry who read the Jewish scriptures knew that that was basically what is called technically a Vaticinium ex eventu. It was a quote-unquote prophecy that was written after the event. And that's what you find in Mark 13 and the, the many apocalypses basically in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels at least. They're Vaticinia ex eventu. They, they are going back and, and making what actually happened a prophecy that comes from the lips of Jesus. And I think that's pretty much the consensus among among mainstream uh, New Testament specialists. The reason that I brought this up is because the, the New Testament writers saw the followers of Jesus also as inheriting the prophetic gifts and, and, and the ability to perform wonders. And you see that um, in the book of Acts, and then you see you know, Paul talks about it um, regarding the gifts of the Spirit and things like that, but it's always in this opposition to the Greco-Roman religions. And I know that now we can look back and see the, the similarities and the connections and even the influences of the Greco-Roman world into the New Testament, but there was always that, that element of, of wanting to um, differentiate themselves. And Christian apologists would say that the real difference is who, whose power are they tapping into? Um, there's a there's a midrash that talks about um, the battle between Moses and Janice and Jambres, the, the the priest of uh, Egypt, and that you know he was able to turn a snake, uh, his staff into a snake, from the power from by the finger of God, and they did it. Usually it says through trickery, but they say that it was done through the power of, of, of the demons or, or the evil forces. So, um, so there's this, this, um, this conflict between, again, light and darkness and, and good and evil. Um, do you see that as a, as a common trend within uh, the teachings about Jesus, that there's always this, this battle? Because in... In future interpretations of the New Testament, they see Jesus as in constant battle with the devil, and and instead of saying that Jesus was a magician or that had was stepping into the demonic forces, is the other way around. He's representing God, and the Jews or whoever is around are the ones who are working for the evil one, and they're trying to trip him and stop him from revealing the power of God. Um, is that what you get from the original text, or? or or is it true what I'm saying that that's how it later got interpreted to to fit their purpose? Well, it's always the, you know, the common denominator in this is that people in the first century believed that miracles were done by spirits. It was not a, a psychological explanation for them. So the question simply boils down to good spirits or bad spirits. And if you, if you look in the magical papyri or any other source that comes basically from that era, the question of how this is done is always a simple answer. The answer is always spirits. So with the exception of some 
very exceptional writers like Lucian, Porphyry, a few writers like this, and and basically the the equivalent of our skeptics from the first century, uh, they would look at it and they would say it's all a bunch of crap. Okay, it's all trickery. It's fake, or it's delusion, and that's the way Celsus explains. Uh, Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus in the garden after the resurrection. He said she's basically a wacko woman who is seeing things, and then from from ancient testimony, it would not be at all difficult to find many stories of basically disturbed women who are seeing things. Um, so Celsus had his point, and. The Christians have basically, after about a hundred years, come around to essentially the same thing. You have the Catholic epistles, uh, pastoral epistles, I should say, of First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, talking about women who were gadding about the houses, you know, house to house, talking up stuff that they shouldn't talk about, and 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 they're loose and they're and they're unoccupied and they don't actually get accused of witchcraft per se but they get they get accused of of being basically busy bodies with too much time on their hands and up to no good so basically that becomes the christian stance toward women generally which was already the pagan stance toward women that they were susceptible to delusion they were silly they tended to grab onto to crazy ideas so on so on so there's a there's a cultural there's obviously a cultural thing going on there but the but like i said the common denominator is the explanation of spirits so naturally if somebody that you don't like is performing miracles in the new testament you never say oh well that's just trickery you say that's satan and that's the same thing going on today Something happens that evangelicals don't like. What is it? It's a sign of Satan. It's the, it's the sign of the end. A hurricane comes ashore, and it's, you know, the sign that America is falling into sin, blah, blah, blah. It's always this. There's always that, that explanation that is handy to grab onto. It's the only explanation that, that some, you know, religious conservatives seem to have for anything that goes on that they don't like. And, and so in, in 2,000 years, nothing has actually changed in, in that regard. I, you know, I've had this discussion on another program, and, and basically I say, you know, religion is, is magic for the, for the populace, and magic is religion for the individual. And that particularly comes, becomes clear when somebody is dying. When somebody's dying and all of a sudden the magic becomes personal, the religion becomes personal. I don't see any difference at all between magic generally and religion generally in the ancient world. Now, this, this used to be kicked around endlessly. There were like scores of people who, who wrote thousands of pages trying to delineate the difference between religion and magic. And I, my sense is that after reading a lot of that stuff and having one conclusion after another kind of fall by the wayside, the scholarly community has finally just given up on that project <laughs> because nobody, nobody could make a case that somebody else couldn't basically shred. They couldn't come along and find examples or texts that, that turned the argument on its head. And so finally, I think that we've arrived at a consensus that for all practical purposes, there's, there's no difference. Uh, it was just a difference in how people explained it, which, which spirit force they chose to, you know, to use as an explanation. So if you liked it, it was from God. If you didn't like it, it was Satan, just like today. There's no real, no real, you know, effort to get behind it and explain it with any anything else. That said, I think that if you read the uh, 
literature that's available, much of it online, much of it free access, open access, on hallucinations versus visions and people having paranormal experiences generally. I think it's quite, it, it's quite an eye-opener. I think you will find that a very, very substantial percentage of people who, for example, have lost a spouse recently have uh, episodes of either sensing the person's presence after they're dead, sometimes hearing them, and even sometimes seeing them as if they were alive. That's not, in fact, unusual at all, it turns out, through large surveys of people who have have experienced death in their families. I think that there are some really detailed psychological studies where large populations of people have been surveyed that demonstrate pretty much beyond a doubt that there is, uh, there is a potential for a person to trigger a temporal lobe seizure in themselves, either through it can, some people say it can be accomplished through rocking motions, the sort of back and forth motion that you of the body that you see typically with people engaged in prayer, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, it can be done through low blood sugar, which would result from fasting. It can be done from through various types of other physical privation. It can be done uh, in situations where. Uh, the person is socially isolated, such as going out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, you know. And all of these things can be used to potentiate uh, hallucinations, visions, whatever you want to call them, and that these temporal lobe seizures, which have now been proved to occur uh, scientifically with, with instruments that are able to record brain waves and flow of blood through the cortex and what have you, uh, that these can be triggered, that the person can learn how to trigger them, that they are not accompanied by physical signs such as facial tics or generalized uh, motor seizures where a person falls down, convulses, and what have you. On the other hand, there are a number of, of speculative articles that go back decades that look at the the case of Paul falling on the road, seeing the bright light, hearing the voice of Jesus, that matches up with temporal lobe uh, epilepsy that actually does progress to a seizure. And there is also a quotation in the book of Acts where Jesus is speaking to Paul and asks him, why do you kick against the goads or against the pricks? as some people uh, translate it, which is a line that comes straight out of the Greek play, the Baki. And that's exactly what Dionysus says to Pentheus when Pentheus begins to resist the incursion of Bacchic religion uh, into his, his area of Greece. Uh, in fact, there are experts on the story of Dionysus that will that can line up a half a dozen or more uh, very close similarities, almost perfect parallels between the story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus and the play The Bacchae. And so, and and most of those people have concluded, you know, these are these coincidences are way too many to be, you know accidental. This isn't just something that, that happens due to free composition. Somebody was cribbing off somebody else. And, and the play was very well known during the time that Luke, uh, who quotes it, was writing. Luke was, it is generally agreed, a Gentile who would have probably, if he was literate, have seen this play or known about it. So yeah, I mean, it it, it speaks, that whole thing speaks to several problems. First of all, the sources and how shaky we are in terms of identifying the actual source of many of the gospel stories and 
it touches on the problem of us transporting ourselves back into that culture of really understanding a culture that's been gone for 2,000 years and taking their taking their viewpoint seriously, taking it as literally as they did. So, But, you know, like I said, I, it's hard to get dogmatic about a lot of this stuff because actually no one really knows. Everyone is, is on thin ice and, and speculating about this. Well, I just wanted to say that um, the passage that relates to the finger of God is Luke eleven twenty, where... Um, it says that he drives the demons by the finger of God. And, and and that leads to the next point. You mentioned the legends of demons in books about Solomon. The Testament of Solomon, a Jewish Christian text, um, kind of plays around with the idea of uh, King Solomon having the ability to command demons and have them, like, he, like, debates them, and then he has them help him and he has control over them. So, and it's the reason they, they call it a Jewish Christian text is because the, the version that we have talks about in, in some areas that, uh, you know, Solomon did not fulfill his purpose, but Jesus came and, and finished the job or things like that. There's little apologetic things here and there. But what I see is that there is some influence from from the Testament of Solomon to the New Testament and the other way around, because there's this idea that, that Jesus is greater than Solomon that, that in the New Testament, and that Solomon had majesty and he had a lot of wisdom, but Jesus being a lowly uh, preacher, he has some gifts that are similar to, to Solomon and the ability of being feared by the demons and having the demons um, like respect him and venerate him. Um, do you see that, that, uh, again, if we were to compare demonic possession in other cultures and the way that that is portrayed in the New Testament, there's this idea that, like, he's cleaning house, that he's um, shutting down the works of the devil, and he even confronts the devil with, with Scripture. So there's this idea that, that even though you don't see much of that in the, in the Hebrew Scripture of the Old Testament, now there's there's been a takeover by demonic forces and he's coming to relieve people of that and and even in the in the healing that he does there's this aspect of, of him driving out the demons or the unclean spirits and restoring people um is that um something that is unique to to his um mission do you or do you see that also in, in other figures in the mediterranean world uh, you see it everywhere in the Mediterranean world. You have a Jewish exorcist actually producing evidence of an exorcism uh, in front of Vespasian in, in one of the uh, in one of the ancient accounts. Uh, exorcism is is going on all over, but um, as as you point out, the Jewish people in particular had a reputation as exorcists. And so it was not at all out of character that Jesus, as a Jew, would emphasize exorcism. At some point, however, the suggestion is that exorcism becomes a problem for the church because it's all over the place in Mark. The... Uh, more lurid details of the exorcisms are missing in Matthew and Luke, and there are no exorcisms recorded in the Gospel of John. Nothing about exorcism in the fourth gospel, which is written at the very end of the first century, beginning of the second, somewhere along in there. In the Gospel of John, in fact, you have a, a movement away from Judaism in the Gospel of John, for example, the Jews, which recurs over and over and over and over again, is basically a shorthand for the enemy of Christians. Um, the Gospel of John has become exceedingly uh, anti-Semitic, if you will, 
we have Jesus in, I think it's John 6, telling his followers, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, uh, or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you know, you won't have everlasting life. You can't imagine anybody who is an observant Jew telling somebody to drink blood. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like nuts. You would have to know essentially nothing about the Levitical law to have somebody who was who Jewish say something like that. That and and it shows you how how far away from the sources we're getting even by the end of the first century. We have the the Jewish mother church in Jerusalem has been destroyed, along with everything else. The, the the main characters of the earliest church, James, Peter, Paul, they're all executed probably by A.D., what, 55, 60, somewhere along in there. They're all gone. Uh, then the Romans come along, fight a war, scatter everybody else. In the meantime, the, the Christian communities are mostly in Asia Minor, in Alexandria, they're in Egypt, they're in, you know, they're in Asia, they're, they're not in Palestine anymore. Then we have another revolt, and and actually uh, Jerusalem is renamed Aelia Capitolina, and Jews are forbidden to even enter it, except once a year, under Hadrian. So, you might say that, that the Jewish aspect of Christianity is has faded almost to oblivion by the end of the first century and and the Jewish flavor of Christianity has has basically is eradicated by that time so, yeah I mean it's 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 very hard to to reconstruct all of this but if you if you look back at it and and you think about how much has been lost, I think it's pretty clear that we're talking about a, a tiny tiny percentage of the data that was once there that has survived down to us. And then touching on your point about you know the the Testament of Solomon, Odes of Solomon, all of these Solomonic, uh, of this material that has come down to us, you have to think about who copied this and then copied those copies to keep these texts alive after the fall of Jerusalem. I mean, who dominated the religious world after about the 3rd and 4th century? Well, it was Christians. So Christians had to have some kind of interest in these texts for these texts to even survive down to our day, right? And and they had ample opportunity to insert their own spin, as it were, into these texts. I mean, they were the caretakers of these texts. And, and they had more than enough opportunity to, to tweak, you know, the message, as it were. Well, going to your article... Um was Jesus accused of necromancy? Um, you talk about how, um, well, the one passage that I always found strange was the transfiguration in Mark 9, 5, um, where the only other example of someone who's dead coming back and speaking to people or at least appearing to them is the one of um, Samuel with the witch of Ender. So, so now you have Jesus um, on top of a mount and there's apparitions of Moses and Elijah. And even though they don't say anything, there's this idea that a cloud came over the mount and they felt God's presence. But could there be an interpretation or, or um, a scenario where uh, he could be accused of conjuring up the, the spirits of the two prophets? So he, re, he, he can't confuse Jesus with John the Baptist because the, the context of the gospel shows, first of all, that the, the career of Jesus and the career of John the Baptist overlapped. Herod, in fact, was the one who was responsible for throwing John in prison and having him eventually beheaded. 
at the same time that Jesus is still gathering followers. So it's clear that, that Herod knew John the Baptist, and he knew, at least knew, of Jesus. At, according to, I forget which gospel it is, Jesus, after his appearance before Pontius Pilate, is sent over to Herod to satisfy Herod's curiosity. So Herod is clearly uh, aware that these two individuals are out there, and he's obviously going to be aware of them because both of them are drawing crowds. That's one of the other things about John the Baptist. It says that people went out from all over the place to see John. And then when Jesus comes along and begins performing healings and exorcism, the Gospel of Mark starts listing all of the places that people flocked to 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 see Jesus. Finally to the point where according to Mark, Jesus can't even get in his own home because there's such a crowd of people around. Now considering that Herod is a client of the Roman state and that the Romans want Palestine to be peaceful so that they can, you know, conduct business, collect taxes, which is what what they're ultimately there for is to is to extract wealth from you know the colony herod is obviously going to be aware of of who's who in in judea and galilee he's going to have probably informers who are going out with these crowds to keep an eye on these prophets since we know from josephus that the romans fairly frequently hunted these people down and killed them when they got too much popularity and they were gathering too much of a crowd, it made the authorities nervous and they would squash them. So there are many reasons to think that Herod knew who John was and knew who Jesus was and that when he raised the question about Jesus' powers, he was suggesting that Jesus had raised the ghost of John the Baptist. And this is a pretty old speculation that goes back, I think, to the Journal of Biblical Literature back in the 1920s or 30s. It was actually written up by a professor at Yale at the time. Well, you, you quote Carl Kraling. Is that the professor from Yale? Yeah. Um, my, my question about that is that let's say that he was um, doing it by the power of, of, of John or he brought John back. John is not known either in the Gospels or in the outside sources as having any miraculous or... Right, right for performing miracles, right, I know, yeah. <laughs> so he's seen as a harbinger of the Messiah or as a prophet, so how is he doing stuff by the power of John the Baptist, other if he can claim? Well, see, and, that, and, and that's the problem, isn't it, with... with, with the, the redaction of the Gospels, because if if John is supposedly coming before Jesus with the power of Elijah, who was a major miracle worker, right, probably one of the greatest miracle workers of the Old Testament, then all of a sudden, John has no miracles to perform. Now, why would that be? I mean, you don't have to think very hard to figure out that if you're trying to promote Jesus and you're trying to demote John, which in the Gospels we have John's followers coming to Jesus after John is imprisoned and asking him, are you the real thing or, or do we expect somebody else? And Jesus says, what? The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, blah, 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 blah. So... Obviously, the writers of the Gospels do not want John out there performing miracles hand over fist because that detracts from the reputation of John. They want John to simply be the guy who announces, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, the one coming after me. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, blah, blah, blah. So that is obviously all just essentially apologetic BS. 
you wouldn't think that John would be much of a prophet like the prophets of the Old Testament if he had no miracles to perform. I mean, that, that wouldn't make any sense given what prophets do in the Old Testament. The whole point about raising the ghost of John the Baptist that Crayling brought up to his credit is that, first of all, John fits the categories that make a powerful ghost. And those are basically, he dies before the end of the natural end of his life. He dies violently by execution. So those put John into two categories that we know of that fit him to become a powerful, restless, resentful ghost. The other thing that's interesting is that when Matthew retells this story and Luke retells this story, they change it. They have, they have Hera just like so confused, he just doesn't know, like, like, what's going on here? You know, I just, I have no idea how Jesus gets this power. Matthew has John, interestingly, beheaded and then has John's disciples come back to Jesus to report that they've taken away the body. So the, you know, the part of the, the ghost lore from the entire Mediterranean world is that if you, if you chop up the body or, or you disfigure or mutilate the body in some way, that it tends to disable the resulting ghost. The Greeks were so afraid of this that if a person was murdered, the murderer would sometimes cut the limbs off and string them around the neck like a gruesome necklace. It was called maskalismos. So on the theory that if you cut the guy's legs and arms off, then the ghost will come back without legs and arms, so what can he do? And there's some theory out there. Some people have had the opinion that maybe the reason that the whole story about Salome getting Herod to behead John and having his head on a platter is to basically make him, is to, is to cut the head off the ghost so that possibly to, and again, we're speculating here because that's all we, all we can do given the evidence that we have, possibly to prevent John from becoming an effective spirit, come back to be called up from the dead. But the fact that, that ghosts were called up from the dead to accomplish magical ends, magical purposes, is, is all through the magical papyri. That, that's not even, that's not even a, a question from there. So I think that Carl Kraling... Uh, was onto something. I think that he made a very good case at the time, and I think that the the material that has come to light since he wrote makes it an even better case, which is what I argued in in my uh, in my essay that put up online. That essay, by the way, has been adapted to the chapter of a book that I'm writing at the moment called "The Ghost of John the Baptist." because it gives you some background as to how spirit manipulation was thought to occur in, in, back in the time that Jesus lived. You know, obviously edit that story uh, to, to change the brunt of it. I think that they were probably, probably aware of the interpretation that Mark reports Herod having put on it. But that said... If you look back at the Old Testament in terms of its prohibitions uh, against necromancy, against uh, consulting spirits, etc., etc., magic in general, it's hard to explain why you would need those prohibitions if you weren't, if there weren't actually something out there to prohibit. In the story of Saul going to the the witch of Endor. Uh, Obviously, Saul in the story has already extirpated as much of that sort of necromancy as he can from the land, according to the, the Old Testament, and yet he's able to find this woman. 
everybody kind of it's an open secret oh yeah you need a well if you need a a person to raise somebody from the dead we know a lady down in indoor <laughs> and they go and they go right to her they don't they don't they don't have to look around so if you look at the if you look at the official report of any religion nothing much is going on if you look at popular culture on the other hand a lot is going on i mean how many christians are reading horoscopes i mean there must be a lot of them because horoscopes you know are pretty much a feature of every newspaper every magazine we have call-in shows you know where you can call in and get your get your cards read and what have you we have uh, palm readers and we have tarot card readers practically every six blocks here in Sacramento where I'm living there are probably nearly as many of them as there are churches so clearly something's going on on the popular level that is not reflected in in the official history or the official view of the religion so people are living on two different levels and it's quite possible that Jesus or anybody else was at least accused of having power because he raised a ghost since John was a popular person and was now conveniently dead and somebody was asking where is Jesus getting all this power it would it would occur to Herod that oh, he raised the ghost of John the Baptist and that's what's working in him so but it connotes that, that John had power to begin with it would assume, you would have to assume that, that John had powers to begin with or at least was a popular person who had charismatic power at least very at the very minimum the power to draw very large crowds who went out to hear him preach uh, so one way or the other John was clearly a powerful individual uh, he was an apocalyptic individual who was preaching you know the axes laying at the root of the tree watch out you know the end is nigh the fact that Jesus went to John to be baptized suggests that John was a powerful individual why would Jesus feel the need to go get baptized by John and I think that when the Christians were confronted the gospel writers were confronted with this fact that Jesus was apparently started out as a disciple of John the Baptist suddenly they and probably even after his death John probably had followers he probably had people who still you know believed in him who still respected him uh, likely right in Jerusalem or right in uh, in Judea here's another Jewish group because the Christians didn't start out as Christians they started out as a Jewish group in Jerusalem uh, they have followers of John the Baptist to contend with how do you explain to followers of John the Baptist that Jesus was was more powerful that he was the one that was actually foretold not John that John was just the forerunner that John's just the announcer who opens the show so to speak and that Jesus is the main act well you downplay Jesus I mean you downplay John and you elevate Jesus at the same time it's a situational response which is basically what everything in the Gospels uh, is, is a situational response. It's a response to what's happening at the time that Gospel is written, what the controversies are, what, what individuals the, the Gospel writer is hoping to address, both supporters and critics. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page. I'd like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The songs you hear on our introduction and finale are from the band The Ancient Gnostics. The first one is called Day by Day, produced by Hafki. The second one is called All Mine, and it's produced by Brotherhood. Time. Doing better on my own now is my time. 
It's what I chose, it's what I own, it's my life.